This fall, Roe is on the ballot. Personal freedoms are on the ballot. The right to privacy, liberty, equality, they're all on the ballot. Until then, I will do all of my power to protect a woman's right in states where they will face the consequences of today's decision. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That clip was one many of you have likely heard as President Biden discussed the fundamental ways to protect the right to choose through voting. I'm Jason Franklin, Senior Advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, July 12th. Let's start off talking about the battle over choice. Since the Supreme Court decision, there has been incredible mobilization, a lot of strategizing over what comes next. On Friday, of course, Biden signed an executive order instructing various federal agencies to explore further health and privacy protections. He's vowed to defend people who travel out of state for an abortion, offered support for access to abortion pills. And just today, the Health and Human Services Department reminded emergency room doctors that they are required and allowed to provide emergency health care, including reproductive health care for women who are facing emergency situations, and that federal law overtakes state law in that respect. Now, that's going to be a further area of litigation, as will so many of these, but there are steps underway. There's also a lot of conversation right now about why is the Biden administration not going farther? And some recent stories emerging with different Biden officials talking about the fact that one thing they're really trying to do is measure how far can they go in taking federal action without pushing so far that they give actually the Supreme Court the chance to make other additional constraints on federal authority. So there's a dance here with a newly emboldened conservative majority not wanting to give the court room to further curtail federal power. So back and forth dance on that front that we're going to see over these coming months. Also yesterday in Michigan, organizers including Planned Parenthood, ACLU, and Michigan Voice, a coalition of local Michigan organizations, submitted over 800,000 signatures to put a ballot measure on the ballot for this November, protecting the right to choose in Michigan. Likely one of the most important and significant state-level legislative actions that will be up this fall. And particularly the fact that it's in the battleground state of Michigan will have ripple effects in terms of turnout, mobilization, and more. So a lot of people will be focusing on Michigan, among other states, but it's the battleground state where this is now going to be on the ballot. And it really gets to that question of will choice become the defining issue or a defining issue for this election? In Michigan, with a ballot measure, it seems much more likely we'll have a chance to see in Michigan how will that resonate and turn out voters in a bunch of other critical elections across the state. We'll also get to see in states where it's not on the ballot formally, where we have a pro-choice versus pro-life set of candidates, how will it play out? Or if you have a more moderated debate or stances, will it still resonate in a Democrat versus Republican dynamic? So lots of questions, lots of wondering things to be keeping a focus on. Another thing bubbling up this week have been a set of stories coming out from different outlets about the fact that Biden's not popular, Trump is not popular, you know, Biden's presidential approval polls coming in as low as Trump's ever did. There's a very high number of people saying they don't want Trump or Biden 
And Roots Action Progressive Grassroots Internet Group is running a new campaign, Don't Run Joe, trying to capitalize on this to push for somebody else to run. And just this morning, a new New York Times Siena College poll found that nearly half of Republican voters want somebody other than Trump as their nominee in 24. Trump still leads in the hypothetical matchup, but Ron DeSantis and others are coming. And just to note, as these conversations go, one of the things I've been telling people is this is also just really normal, what we call horse race conversation. We're in July, halfway through a first president's first term in office. And the big question is, well, what's going to happen next? Who's going to run? Partly it's driven by Biden's age, you know, incredible polarization, the low approval numbers, but it's also happens every time we're in the first term of a president's tenure, about halfway through. And it even tends to happen right about now. We're in the middle of July. We have no big primaries coming up for several more weeks. And so all of those political reporters need to fill their column inches. And so you get a lot of these horse race conversations and approval polls that become entire stories. So don't get too caught up into it. Take it. It is important to consider, but there's a long time before we get to the 2024 election. What we do know is coming up, we do have one primary and that's in Maryland hasn't been as big a national conversation, but the things to look at, you know, on the Democratic side, there are three contenders. This is a chance for Democrats to retake a governorship held by a longtime moderate Governor Hogan, who's been termed out. On the Republican side, yet another moment of seeing a Trump-endorsed state legislator, Dan Cox, up against former Hogan cabinet member Kelly Schultz, who's more moderate. And so which way will the Republican Party go in a very progressive state? The other big thing in Maryland to be looking at is that APAC, the pro-Israeli group, their super PAC, United Democracy Project, has been really focused on influencing some of the Democratic primaries. Oh, and they've been a very, very big spender this primary season. Their biggest spending in the whole country is in Maryland, where they're trying to stop Representative Donna Edwards um, from regaining a seat in Congress in Maryland's fourth district. J Street, the more progressive Jewish group, is backing Edwards, and it's kind of a showdown on a number of fronts, but something worth watching in terms of the direction of the Democratic Party. Two more things I want to talk about today. One is about kind of looking a little bit forward. What are we going to see upcoming for some of the summer legislation? And there's two big pieces of legislation or action at the federal level that could have ripple effects for both policy, but also politics and the implications for our democracy. One has been the ongoing negotiations between Senator Schumer and Senator Manchin about trying to do some pared back version of the Build Back Better, you know, a mix of climate tax and prescription drugs and medical care seem to be the big three pieces that they're including. And the reason it's noteworthy right now is they actually just hit a milestone. The first part of the legislation, a final prescription drug pricing reform deal, they have finally agreed to it with lower drug prices, raise $250 billion in revenue is what they expect. They have formally submitted that to the Senate parliamentarian. So it's an important moment because it means they have agreed enough that they're getting the check-in with the parliamentarian to find out, could we pass this on a 50 plus one vote and be avoid the filibuster? So that is a big deal. Overall, they're looking at roughly a trillion dollars in new revenue. Half of it would go towards deficit reduction, half towards energy and health spending. Other big things they're looking at will be around extending solvency for Medicare, around uh, energy package, although there's discussion that the new subsidies for electric vehicles could be cut as they're trying to cut back that and try to get Mansion to a yes. And questions of passing a tax package that would particularly target the ultra wealthy in the United States. So 
it is getting closer. The fact that this first piece was submitted to the parliamentarian is a signal. And the Democrats are really trying to get something passed that they could campaign on in the fall. Of course, the question is, if they don't get a big enough thing passed, will it get the impact that they're hoping? The other big thing looking forward in the summer is around student debt. One of the areas that Biden ran on that he has the authority to do unilaterally would be to forgive federal student debt. The conversations seem to be emerging around a $10,000 per person would be means tested. There's a fight over whether it could be bigger, pushback on that and trying to understand especially what would be the impact on youth voters. If Biden's administration does forgive student debt, will it mobilize young voters? Will it be seen as not enough and it will have a counter effect? These questions, they both have incredible impact on people's lives but also incredible impact on our elections and on the future of our democracy. So two things to definitely keep your eye on, likely the two biggest pieces of activity moving forward. The last thing I want to talk about today is, you know, I've, I've been talking about it over and over for the last few months, but it's worth still paying attention to is how our process of voting continues to change state by state. We've got a lot of changes that have happened in the last couple of weeks. And really what we're seeing overall is that in battlegrounds or closely divided states, we're kind of seeing a mix, you know. New Hampshire enacted new restrictive voting ID requirements. Missouri also passed restrictive voting ID requirements and prohibited ballot boxes, but they did also add two weeks of early in-person voting, so a mix. But Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled in Teagan versus the Wisconsin Election Commission that effectively banning ballot boxes in Wisconsin and Louisiana also is now banning ballot boxes, although they did add a process for voters to cure errors with their ballots, which is a good thing. So mix, mostly negative, but there is a mix, whereas in more democratically controlled states, you are seeing the protections for the right to vote being moved forward. You know, New York enacted probably the most comprehensive state voting rights act, but you also saw Massachusetts enact the votes act there, which expands the number of early voting days, online voting, automatic voter registration. In Rhode Island, they passed the Rhode Island vote act to make a bunch of changes, you know, no act excuse absentee ballots, an online portal to request an absentee ballot, expanding the use of drop boxes. In Colorado, they passed a law providing protections for election officials. And in Delaware, they're expecting the governor to sign any day a law that would implement no excuse absentee voting for the first time in the state. So we're seeing this kind of expansion of the right to vote and strengthening of protections of the right to vote in democratically controlled states. You're seeing the restriction in conservative in Republican controlled states and in those kind of split states, a real mix often going to the courts mirrors the dynamics we're seeing overall in the country, but also exacerbates these same dynamics because what it means is it's going to be harder and harder in more conservative places for people to get the right to vote. And it is in these state laws that we see actually the future of the federal election process playing out. Of course, the last thing to talk about is that the court has taken up this case to consider independent state legislative theory, which hopefully they strike down, but if they do stand up, huge ripple effects. And so all of these questions of what you're seeing passed on a state-by-state -state basis in terms of voting process becomes bigger. Obviously, the first place this begins is with redistricting. We've got a ways to go before we get there, although it would have an impact on a bunch of the court cases still working their way through. But it would also be the first step to then say, well, state legislatures should get to do whatever they want on all these other processes of voting. So something that is potentially far reaching and frightening, although 
not much we can do now except wait to see how that case works its way through the Supreme Court over the coming months. But that's all I've got for this week's review of developments in American democracy, you know, from the right to choose and the kind of horse race politics to upcoming legislation and state changes, things to keep an eye on, even as we go into the relative quiet of American democracy during the late summer. I look forward, though, to talking with you next week on 10 Minutes on Democracy, and we'll see what bubbles up during July. Until then, take care. Bye-bye.